Welcome back to the Z Files. I am Professor Z, and I will be your host for this episode. This podcast is your one stop shop for all things crime related. I use my eight years of research and three years as a criminology professor to cram each episode with facts about crime patterns, statistics, criminal behavior, and tips for improving your personal safety. Say goodbye to the fear you think you have about crime and say hello to your new expertise in the field of criminology. Today we will be talking about sexual assault. We will be covering topics such as rape and child sexual abuse in graphic detail. I do not believe this content is appropriate for anyone under the age of 18. And it's my personal opinion that if you have survived a sexual assault, the content in this episode will be very triggering and disturbing. With that warning, I will start. Two-thirds of sexual assault victims are minors. And now that I've told you that children make up the majority of sexual assault victims in America, I also want you to know that 15 out of 16 rapists will not be prosecuted, charged, convicted, or incarcerated for their crime. From research that has been gathered on offenders who choose to sexually assault someone, their victim count can range anywhere from 60 to 200 people before they stop, if they ever do. And unlike my other episodes where I hope the information can dissolve anxiety about crime, I want this episode to haunt people. This crime will continue to increase in America until the criminal justice system is fundamentally changed. All of us have a responsibility for that change, because the criminal justice system isn't a robot that delivers justice straight from the text of our criminal law. The law was created by humans, and it's operated by humans, and because of that, the system will continue to reflect biases, prejudice, and ignorance. Anyone who's part of American society is responsible for making these changes happen in the criminal justice system, because we shape it. Our votes, the laws that we pass, our opinions, our daily conversations, the jokes we allow, all of these contribute to society's response to sexual assault. And we can't find a solution if we don't fully understand the problem. We live in a time in the United States when nearly all property and violent crimes steadily decrease. And yet, sexual assault numbers are ever-growing and continually ignored. For context, if you live in America, your odds of being the victim of homicide are 1 in 20,000. If you're a woman in America, your odds of being sexually assaulted are 1 in 6. If you're a man living in America, your odds are 1 in 33. My first research experience in the content was a semester-long assignment with an ending project to do a presentation about why rape occurs. To complete this project, I read 15 books on serial rapists and child sexual abuse. I've continued this research across the fields of sociology, psychology, criminology, and perspectives from feminism. From my research that's involved scholars from any field looking into this crime, it is my belief that rape is an attack an offender voluntarily chooses to do to someone in the misbelief that they will gain power or control over the person they are attacking. For the next 15 minutes, I will present my evidence about how American society continues to encourage sexual assault by centuries of misinformation. This misinformation constructed so many of the wrong ideas about why this crime happens and how we can stop it. 
My own ideas were originally shaped by myths surrounding rape. I remember coming to college pretty far from my hometown and being worried about someone raping me. I thought I could protect myself if I just wore non-attractive clothing and always had pepper spray with me. Little did I know, my parents had actually done most of the work to protect me up to that point. If someone had wanted to rape me at college, my clothing choice or my keychain pepper spray would have done nothing to stop them. I'm really thankful for how my parents protected me from sexual assault while I was growing up. Which isn't to say that when a child is sexually assaulted, the blame should fall on the parents. But I consciously recognize the steps my mom and dad took to keep me safe. One of those is that I remember my dad was really adamant about me never seeing a male doctor by myself, even after I turned 18 and would come home from college to visit and had appointments. Him or my mom were always in the room with me. I was never so thankful for this until one of the doctors in my hometown was convicted of distributing child pornography. I had appointments with that doctor once or twice, but one of my parents were always in the room, even if it was something very simple like filling a prescription. Anyways, when that doctor was arrested by the FBI and convicted of a variety of sex crimes against children, I was nearly thankful to tears to my parents for how they protected me because that predator never had the opportunity to harm me because of their foresight. My safe childhood experience is not what a lot of children in this country will be able to share. And that's why we need to get into some pretty graphic details so we can have a full understanding of this crime and the motivations behind it. The official acts of sexual assault I will be discussing fall under the FBI's definition. According to the FBI, rape is penetration no matter how slight, of the vagina or anus with any body part or object or oral penetration by a sex organ of another person without the consent of the victim. This definition is not even 10 years old yet. Assaults that were counted as rape in the FBI database up until 2013 were recorded under the legacy definition, which was the carnal knowledge of a female forcibly and against her will. That's it. 11 words to describe one of the most violent attacks against a human. In 80 years of the UCR's crime data collecting history, the FBI would reject anything that fell outside those 11 words. In court, this definition continued the injustice against victims because officials couldn't figure out what they meant by against her will. In some cases, women had to prove they fought to near death to escape a sexual assault in order to prove that it wasn't their will. Other times, if the attacker didn't have a weapon, the court didn't understand why the victim wasn't successful in fighting back. It's too bad the courts don't consult science more, or they would know that 50% of survivors of rape suffer tonic mobility, meaning their brain triggers a paralysis response during a sexual assault, regardless of the presence of a weapon. It's an uncontrollable physiological response. Another problem with the FBI's definition originally, was that it did not include male victims of rape. It didn't provide a comprehensive statistical counting of rape whatsoever. So an already underreported crime was hacked down even further by an inadequate definition provided by criminal justice officials. The FBI provides a few scenarios to explain this new definition. So I'm going to read a few of those. The following are reported crimes that actually happened but are not labeled as rape. 
A man cornered a woman waiting at a bus stop and threatened to hit her if she screamed. He grabbed her breast, threw her blouse, and then fled. At a family reunion, an 18-year-old girl had consensual sexual intercourse with her 17-year-old cousin in violation of the state's incest laws. No force or weapon was involved. The age of consent in the state is 16. Those scenarios are considered sexual assault, but they're not rape. These next scenarios were reported to the FBI as actual crimes that happened and do fall under the label of rape. A man worked as an aide at a residential facility for adults with a range of mental disabilities. He led a woman in his care who had a severe mental disability to the woods behind the facility. Once alone, he fondled her and sexually penetrated her. Because of the woman's disability, she wasn't able to understand and consent to the sexual act. This is rape. A woman broke up with her ex-boyfriend three months earlier, but he showed up at her workplace and followed her home. Once there, he intimidated her and told her he wouldn't leave until she had sex with him. He forced her to perform oral sex on him. This is rape. A woman took her young son to a secluded park. She told him they would have special time together, convinced him to remove his pants, and penetrated his anus with her fingers. She told the boy that she would go to jail if he told anyone and that his father would not love him anymore. This is rape. A female high school student was drinking with a male classmate at her house. The man gave her a pill that he said would make her feel really good. After taking the pill, the woman did not recall what happened. A rape kit indicated semen from sexual penetration. This is also rape. Now that we've gone over the definition that's operating the criminal justice system about rape, I want to talk about the damaging myths to, that contribute to that harmful statistic I shared earlier in that most rapists are never convicted or punished for their crime. Let's start with the first one about rape that permeates so much of our culture. This one suggests that all women are temptresses out to seduce men, and at the same time, men turn into uncontrollable sex machines whenever they see a woman who is attractive to them. First, this degrades all men to less than an animal status because even most animals have a mating ritual they follow that doesn't involve rape. And yes, while 98% of convicted rapists are men, that doesn't mean 98% of men are rapists. We have a range of statistics revealed through research to prove my point, but all of it shows that less than 16% of men are rapists. In a study done in 2010 on men attending college, Researchers found that 6% of college men were responsible for the vast majority of sexual assault on that campus. We can use this information to help us understand the pattern of sexual offending for the larger population. So if you are a man listening to my podcast, I hope none of this comes off as me rampaging against all men. That's not what I want to do. Waging a war against all men doesn't solve this problem anyways. I really want people to think about how to detect and punish the specific percentage of men responsible for these actions. Another damaging idea that resonates with so many is this idea that somehow clothing or lack of it can instigate rape. If our brains worked like this, everyone would be holding back rape impulses whenever they noticed an attractive feature on another person. The cause of rape is the offender. When an offender chooses to sexually assault someone, the blame falls 100% on them. They made that choice to do that to someone. When a house is burglarized, we blame the burglar, not the house. When someone reports a robbery, we blame the person who did the robbing, 
not the person who had their wallet taken at gunpoint. And yet, when someone's sexually assaulted, often some of the first questions that will come out in the investigation is, well, what was the victim wearing? Why does that matter? It doesn't. Demonstrations breaking out across Ireland backlash to a rape trial in Cork last week. According to the Irish Times, during closing remarks, the defense lawyer told jurors they should consider the underwear the teenage complainant wore on the night she alleged she was raped, saying, does the evidence outrule the possibility that she was attracted to the defendant and was open to meeting someone and being with someone? You have to look at the way she was dressed. She was wearing a thong with a lace front. Deliberations lasted 90 minutes. In a unanimous verdict, the suspect was acquitted. Rape isn't about sex. This isn't someone who's addicted to sex or someone who's been misled in a romantic relationship. They want to commit a violent act against a person. Socially normal people don't enjoy sexually overpowering someone else. That's not regular. And here's another thing. Most rapists don't have a mental disability. So we can't comfort ourselves with, well, maybe we just need to invent a pill or something that can restructure someone's brain. No, no, this is a social decision someone's making to attack another person. Recorded human history for centuries now proves my point that rape is about power and control. It's not about sex, so it's not anything to do with the clothing someone's wearing. That's why time and time again, we can see soldiers in many different countries conquer a place and then go and rape civilians, generally physically weaker civilians. Why is this sexual attraction? It's not. They're actually attracted to power and control they can have over someone. So they choose a person to attack who they feel they can physically overpower. And that's why we see a lot of children who are targeted and a lot of elderly in these situations. Vera is 83 years old, a retired school teacher, who told us when her village was occupied by Russian forces last month, she was raped. He grabbed me by the back of the neck, she said. I started to choke. I couldn't breathe. I told the one who raped me, I'm old enough to be your mother. Would you let this happen to your mother, Vera told us. He made me shut up. She said her disabled husband was in the house when she was attacked and she was also beaten. When he finished, he grabbed a bottle of vodka, she told us. I asked if I could put my clothes back on. He barked no. She said when he left, he fired his assault rifle in the air three times outside. The Ukrainian military took us to Vera's village because they'd heard reports of sexual assault by Russian forces. We were told others were also raped there, including a 16-year-old girl. We cannot independently verify any of the allegations, but Vera's story was detailed, compelling and heartbreaking. She's also reported it to the Ukrainian police, she told us, who took sheets away for testing. I wish he'd killed me instead of what he did, Vera said. The third damaging stereotype I want to talk about in society is a little bit more gendered, but it's still related to rape culture. And it's this idea that women mean yes when they say no. This idea by itself is rooted in years of thought that women don't know what they want or how to explain themselves. 
It's why doctors in the 1950s would address the husband in the room instead of explaining a diagnosis to the wife. It's also related to the colloquial concept known as mansplaining. And we see this show up in official reporting mechanisms, or at least in media responses, that suggest that a lot of reports of sexual assault are false. According to FBI scholars and self-report data that we have cross-tabulated with official police data, less than 2% of reports of rape are false. Less than 2%. It makes no mathematical sense for the immediate response to someone reporting sexual assault to doubt that it happened. 98% of those reports are accurate. Society is uninviting and discouraging for people coming forward to report sexual assault. 84% of rape goes unreported to law enforcement. A variety of factors contribute to this underreporting, but we know for sexual assault, it's mostly caused by damaging social stigmas and discouragement that's built into the criminal justice system as a whole. The social stigma comes from this idea that if you are raped, there's something you did to instigate that attack. Kristen Giangara was out with friends at the Tin Roof Bar in June 2019 when she says Larry Ward answered her call for a Lyft driver. I know I wasn't the first, but I do hope I was the, one of the last. What was supposed to be a six-minute ride to her house turned into 51 minutes of terror, in which Giangara says Ward kidnapped her, took her to a secluded location, and raped her before dropping her off at home. She went public with her allegations in January of last year, announcing she was suing Ward and the rideshare company. I was laying down in the back seat, and I remember um, bright lights from the driver's window. Um, he had opened the back door and was on top of me. Last month, Lyft filed a response to Giangara's lawsuit. It states Giangara failed to act as a reasonable and prudent person with regard to her own safety. Another thing to note is that less than 10% of rape happens at the hands of a stranger. Less than 10%. Most sexual assault is committed by someone who is known by the victim or related to the victim. And when I say most, I'm taking that from five out of six forcible rapes. Now think about it. If you're going to report sexual abuse from a family member, you're going to have to talk to multiple people about that crime, possibly an entire courtroom of people, including other family members, about what happened to you by that person. And if it happened when someone was a kid, that's even more intimidating. Multiple areas in society are responsible for these harmful stereotypes. Porn is a big one. Porn's been around for as long as people can make an image on something. You can even find pornographic images preserved in the Red Line District at Pompeii. Of all things, those images survived the explosion of Mount Vesuvius. Porn was also really popular in the Victorian times, especially when pamphlet-like documents hit the scene. The porn industry really revolutionized itself when it went online in the 1990s. Between 1998 and 2007, the number of pornographic sites grew by 1800%. By 2004, websites distributing porn were getting three times more visitors than Google, Yahoo, and MSA combined. Worldwide porn revenues exceed the incomes of Microsoft, Google, Amazon, eBay, Yahoo, Apple, Netflix, and Earthlink combined. In the US, by the time boys turn 14, two out of three have viewed porn within the last year. Many of them are watching porn on devices they have with them 24 hours a day. 
The connection to sexual violence is that those boys who watch porn are initiated to sex through these images and can become indoctrinated in a way that can stay with them their whole lives. At this point in time, 93% of teenage boys and 62% of teenage girls have viewed porn at least once. In porn, no matter how rough a person treats their partner, nearly everything is shown to feel good. Major messages of porn are male domination, hypermasculinity, and making male sexual pleasure the top priority. In the violent genre of porn, 95% of female victims are portrayed as being neutral to the abuse or enjoying it. And porn is not just an entertainment choice, it's a powerful form of mind control. Porn rewires the brain, just like substance addiction. It literally changes the brain chemistry, so dopamine is no longer delivered in response to natural sexual stimuli, but only delivered after viewing porn. They've found that long-term viewing of porn can lead to emotional disconnection in relationships, and some researchers have suggested it can even lead to early-onset erectile dysfunction. Back in the 1950s, two researchers played a trick on butterflies related to porn. After figuring out which marks on female butterfly wings were most eye-catching to males, the researchers created their own cardboard butterfly models. They exaggerated the patterns on the wings to make them brighter and flashier than would ever be found in nature. Essentially, they created the world's first butterfly supermodels. And the male butterflies fell for it. They went straight for the cardboard mock-ups and tried to mate with them, ignoring the real female butterflies that were right there in plain sight. They gave all their attention to the exaggerated pictures. All that to show how powerful porn can be on the brain. Different forms of media also socialize us to think negatively about sexual assault victims instead of placing the blame on offenders. Liz Trotta, a journalist and commentator, offered her opinion on live television about women who are raped while they are in the military. She said, what did they expect? So I guess in her mind, when a woman wants to step up to serve in the armed forces, she should just expect to be raped. Politicians who are elected to make our society better have also contributed to these damaging myths. Check out these statements made by people in office or running for office. You know, having three daughters and I tell my daughters, well, if rape is inevitable, you should just lie back and enjoy it. So really weird advice for a father to give his daughters and really weird advice for a public official to give members of a society. If it's a legitimate rape, uh, the female body has ways to try to shut that whole thing down. I have many questions about this statement. Uh, first, what is a legitimate rape? Is that a stranger jumping out of the bushes, attacking someone with a knife? And uh, shutting what down? Shutting the attack down? Um, shutting the ability to get pregnant down? What? I, women, please, if you have learned how to become She-Hulk or have the strength of Wonder Woman at a split second notice, please share the secret. I would love to have that knowledge as well. Another intentional word choice by a representative of a state. If a woman has the right to an abortion, why shouldn't a man be free to use his superior strength to force himself on a woman? At least the rapist's pursuit of sexual freedom doesn't result in anyone's death. All of these messages from porn, news anchors, and politicians are directly linked to encouraging sexual violence. The next few phrases I read might sound familiar. You might have become aware of one of these ideas through social media, or you might have heard an argument about why a victim is to blame for sexual assault. Or maybe you yourself hold this idea. The first one is that good girls don't get raped. The next, that women are seductresses. Another popular one, women mean yes when they say no. And lastly, 
most women eventually relax and enjoy rape. These statements that I just listed were not taken from Facebook or a passing conversation. They're direct quotes that came from interviews with 114 convicted rapists. When asked for their justification, these are the things they talked about. It's a major problem when you have the statements of convicted rapists reflected by elected officials and people in the media. That's all I would like to say about this crime today. I will be doing future episodes on this and giving more details. I'll definitely be doing one about child sexual abuse, including the signs a child will show if they're going through that abuse and the signs an offender will show. But for today, I'll end on this. We need to treat rape like any other crime in which the offender is on trial and we use our criminal justice system to seek justice for the person who survived the attack.